Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our Sunday school hour. And uh, we finally made it into a new year, January the 8th of uh, 2023. And so uh, I'll try to not get that wrong and keep saying 2022, but uh, we, we made it and God's been good. And uh, we're looking forward to a, a, a wonderful new year. And uh, we've been going through the life of Daniel for some time. And uh, I've had several people make some good comments on that, and I appreciate that uh, very much. And the uh, book of Daniel and the life of Daniel, of course, um, we pick up after God has warned the people of the two nations, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, over and over and over and over again to, um, you know, uh, clean their life up and start following His Word and walking in His will and loving Him. But they didn't do it and they wouldn't do it. And they uh, continued on till finally, you remember, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple and then took people like Daniel into exile into Babylon to uh, benefit that particular kingdom. And uh, so we were talking in the life of Daniel, at least partially in it, about how the discipline of God is a part of walking with God and knowing, with God, uh, knowing God. If you're going to know Him as your Savior, you're going to know Him as your Lord. And if you don't know Him as your Lord, then you don't really know Him as your Savior. And the idea of him being Lord means that he's the master, he's the boss, you do what he says, and you conform your life to his ways. Too often, it seems today in our uh, modern version of Christianity, too many people are trying to get God to conform himself to our ways when that's uh, really the wrong way uh, to look at it. And... Uh, as we got to the end of the book of Daniel and the end of his life, he had been reading in the uh, writings of the prophet Jeremiah and he had seen that the time of the exile, the 70 years, was coming to an end and he began to pray about it. Well, I want to pick up on that time period and go through a book of the Bible you may not have gone through before. Um, it'll bless you and you might be surprised how many of the people in your class have never even read this book? They may have referenced it a time or two or heard a couple of uh, verses or stories out of it. But to really take a look at what the book means and uh, what it says, uh, you, you might be surprised. And so we're going to do that. And what we are doing is seeing that even after they got back into the land, the remnant of people... And keep in mind, I have uh, read some scholars that say that when uh, Israel was allowed to go back to the land, only about 50,000 went. The rest stayed in Babylon. And they were at home there, and that's where they uh, wanted to be. But for this remnant that went back, you'll notice here that God didn't let up on them either. He didn't say, well, you've learned your lesson. Oh, no big deal. He kept on them uh, just as he did with the previous generations. And so uh, if discipline is a proof of God's love 
And God's love never fails, never quits, never runs out. Then it means that we can look forward to, as the beloved of God, a lifetime of the discipline of God, because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, he trains, he corrects. And so just as the love of God for his children never runs out, neither does his discipline. And of course, um, we uh, talk about that in a way that uh, doesn't always sound terribly positive. But I hope by uh, what we've gone through in the life of Daniel and then uh, what we're going to be looking at here in Haggai, I hope that you come to the place to where you don't just simply dread the discipline of God or uh, hate the discipline of God. I mean, sometimes we act like spiritual toddlers, don't we? That nobody ought to be telling us what to do and there shouldn't be any consequences to anything we do. But you don't learn and you don't grow in uh, that manner. And so uh, we've got to see the discipline of God in a little bit different way, I think, in order that we might uh, benefit from it. Now, the people of Israel, the remnant anyway, had come back out of Babylon. And at one point, they're real gung-ho. And so they start uh, preliminary work on a new temple. Now, you remember the first temple had been built by Solomon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. But now it's a pile of rubble a mountain of rubble, literally, that um, stands just mocking the people of God. And, uh, you know, it, it looks terrible and it looks like uh, God has failed. It looks like nothing is ever going to happen. But these people said, no, we came back to build the temple, so we're going to get started on it. So they built and they laid the foundation of the temple. And then that's about as far as they got for a long time. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So the, temp, uh, the foundation is there and it's been there for about 14 to 16 years at the writing of this book. Now can you imagine if you started to build a new house and you uh, laid the foundation and then you didn't do anything for 14, 15 or 16 years. First of all, nobody would believe you really were going to build it, would they? The other thing, too, is can you imagine the deterioration that would take place? And can you imagine the number of people that would drive by and say, well, you know, they said they were going to build, but look at it, it's still sitting there, and uh, nothing but the foundation. Well, that's what was happening with this uh, temple of the Lord. And so in Haggai... Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, God comes to the place to where he says, Okay, I have had enough. And uh, he's going to confront the people of God as we know that he does. So let's uh, take a look at it. Haggai, Haggai, not Haggai, sorry. Haggai 1, verses 1 through 7. In the second year of King Darius... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. This is all a leadership confrontation, I guess you would say. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest, saying, this is verse 2 now, <coughs> pardon me, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. I mean, 16 years, really? Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Well, what were their ways? What was happening to them? And the Lord's going to just kind of open their eyes to this. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, yet no one is warm. And the one who earns wages... See if this doesn't sound like modern-day America. Earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Well, I would think that if your life was described like what God just described their life as being, you might want to consider your ways. You know, the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over but expecting different results. And uh, God is just simply saying to them, how's this working for you? And maybe they were doing the thing where they said, well, next year, next year it'll be better, next year it'll be better. Can you really say that after 14 years, 15 years, whatever the case may be? Wouldn't you think they would wake up at some point and go, Hey, this isn't going so well, and uh, maybe we need to think about what we're doing and think about the way that we live. After all, that's a good thing for all of us to do from time to time. Take inventory, take stock, find out where you are, and see if there's a better way to be doing things. Well, that's what God calls him to do in this particular portion of chapter 1. Consider your ways. You need to think long and hard about this, he was saying through the prophet. You need to pay attention to what's going on in your life because it's not going well and you need to figure out why it's not going well. So point number one, the loving discipline of God is continuous. The loving discipline of God. Now we said that the sign of God's love is his discipline, and the love of God is an everlasting love. The Lord uh, said uh, to his people, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And we kind of revel in that. Isn't it great that the Lord's love will never run out? That also means his discipline will never run out as well. He never forgets. You ever threaten your kids? when they were misbehaving and you were out with them, when you get home, you know what's going to happen. <coughs> and then maybe you forget, you know. Uh, God never forgets. And God has purpose in everything that he does and a reason in everything that he does. And so um, when we read about this, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. So the governor is hearing from God. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So both civic leaders and religious leaders are being confronted by the Lord. Okay? Now, one of the things, why is Haggai, as he writes this, so precise? Second year of King Darius. And um, then it goes on to say the first day of the month. Okay? Now, Persian, uh, the Persian kingdom, the Persian empire, so precise in what they uh, did and how they kept their records. <coughs> Excuse me. We know exactly when this was. In fact, the uh, date on all of this is August 29th, 520 B.C. And uh, that just gives credibility. Usually when people lie, they're vague. When people are making something up, they're kind of uh, vague and squirrely on all of that. Their details don't match up. And what they're saying doesn't really fit with everything. And uh, yet, when Haggai gives us this here, he gives us the exact date of what is happening. Now, you notice here the second year of Darius. Is this the same guy that uh, Daniel dealt with? Now, you remember when we were going through the life of Daniel, we said that most likely the title Darius was sort of like uh, Caesar or king or something like that. That it was not his proper name, that it was the title that he uh, held during that time. And this is a different Darius. You'll remember that in Daniel, he was called Darius the Mede. Well, they didn't have surnames in the same way that we do. And so that's their way of identifying. This is a different, uh, different Darius, different Persian king. It's uh, a king who ruled from 522 to 486 B.C. Okay? Different guy. Okay, just trust me on that. I had someone ask me one time, why is the Bible so confusing and repeating names? And I said, uh, oh, we don't do that? And he goes, no, not like they did. And I said, you know anybody named Bob? You know anybody named Jim? And they said, well, well, yeah, but I don't get them mixed up like that. And I said, and neither would they. And they had enough identifiers to where the people that were the original recipients of this book the audience, they would read, and they would know exactly what was going on. A little more difficult for us because uh, of the repetition. Now, the Jews have returned from Babylon, but keep in mind, not all have returned. A majority, believe it or not, actually remained in Babylon. You remember Mordecai and Esther in the book of Esther? Why were they still in Babylon? Because they were part of the group that chose to stay in Babylon instead of returning to the nation of Israel. And so the ones who returned were supposed to rebuild the temple. How do we know that? Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <coughs> In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, um, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation 
throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, Cyrus, when he says this, he gives a very clear purpose. Anybody who wants to, go back and rebuild this temple that is in Jerusalem. Now, uh, folks, it's been a while since Cyrus did that, and these people in Israel are just flat out ignoring the purpose for their return. And there's a spiritual purpose in all of this, too. God's name was blasphemed by the destroyed temple and by the um, exile, and they're not doing anything about it because, well, let's just summarize it by saying, apparently God just did not matter all that much to these returning Jews. Now, number two, we're going to say that the loving discipline of God doesn't stop until the heart is changed. Now, uh, let's, let's be clear. When we read in verses 2 through 4 about what is happening here and what is taking place here, uh, what had been the big issue for the nation of Judah before the exile? And one of the biggies was bowing down before idols. Idolatry, right? Well, how well did the exile work? Well, we don't have any record of the Jews in Judah or Jerusalem ever bowing down to a false god or a false idol again. Mission accomplished, right? No, hold on. Not quite. Because God is not just interested in reforming your actions. He wants your heart. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart. Not just making sure the outward appearance is looking good. And that turned into a problem for the Jews later on. Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they would fight that battle with the Jews the rest of their lives. They were very, very self-righteous. Well, back to Haggai. In this case, <coughs> Israel had been conquered, overthrown, and exiled for seven decades. That's a long time, isn't it? And during this time, they dishonored God. They desecrated the land that they were in. And they despised the prophets. And uh, even though they will never again bow to idols, we find here that their heart is still not set right for the Lord. Their heart is still not right and loving the Lord their God. Now, did you notice that when... Uh, we uh, look at those verses uh, 2 through 4. Thus speaks the word, uh, pardon me, the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Well, we can't blame them for that. It's either a good time or a, 
a bad time. Solomon said there's a time for everything under heaven. So what's the deal? And then it says that the word of the Lord came by Haggai saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple of mine lie in ruins? Ah, now we have it. You see, it was always time for them to better their lives. There was always time for them to better their living conditions. There was time for them to take care of what they wanted, what they said that they needed, what they thought they needed anyway. And yet when it came to, well, every day, on their way to work, on their way to market, wherever they might be going, they'd walk past that giant mountain of rubble and that unfinished foundation in the temple, and they didn't even notice it anymore. Now they'd get back home and refresh their landscaping, get back home and repaint, get back home and reshingle the roof, get back home and remodel the bathroom. But uh, we, we got to get to that temple sometime. Just that's not a good time. Not a good time for that. You see what that is revealing is that their hearts were not right. That here they were, maybe they're not bowing down before idols, but they didn't really love the Lord or they would have had that temple cleaned up, fixed up, and uh, all taken care of. So there's no time for God, but plenty of time for themselves. Number three, the loving discipline of God is clear. Verse five says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now you've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. And you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Okay, anything wrong with this picture? Anything not quite fitting together? Something seems really out of whack because we would expect to eat and be filled, to drink and be satisfied, and to be clothed and to be warm at that, but it's not happening. Oh, and then they were working hard, but what was happening? Their earnings were being put into a bag with holes. And so there is a confrontation here by the word of God that the people weren't acting right, living right. They didn't have their priorities in order. And God was just kind of an afterthought, a byproduct, somebody that you needed at certain times. Maybe we could picture God inside of a glass box labeled for emergency use only. Maybe Maybe it was something like that. And so uh, now the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to them. <coughs> Your heart's not right. Your giving's not right. Your thoughts are not right. Your participation is not right. It's time to get up and it's time to get going. And God makes it very, very clear. They didn't say, I wonder what the Lord wants. I wonder what he's talking about. I wonder why things aren't going well. God made it crystal clear he's not a child abuser who just punishes his children and doesn't tell them why he's got a purpose and he's correcting us <coughs> number four the loving discipline of god is corrective it's positive and it gives hope okay now in verse seven thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways now, why is that positive? Why is that corrective? Why is that hopeful? Let me just put it like this. 
If God didn't care, He wouldn't bother trying to correct you. He'd just leave you alone and let you reap what you sow and uh, die that way. If God didn't care about the remnant of Israel, and if rebuilding that temple and them getting right with God and doing the right thing, if that wasn't anything that was on the heart of God, He would have just shrugged His shoulders, so to speak, and said, do whatever you want. And they would have sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind. Remember that? And so in this case, what is God doing? His love and His mercy and His grace says, look, hold up, guys. You need to do some thinking. Consider your ways. Pay attention to what I'm saying and pay attention to what I'm doing. Pay attention to the way this whole thing works. And um, after he has confronted them about the fact that here you are living in a fine cedar-paneled house, yet the temple's lying in ruins, what's wrong with this picture? And yet on feast days, you'll sing about how you love me. You'll quote scriptures about how great and wonderful and power, uh, powerful I am. But if I am all those things, where's the honor? And we would do well to ask ourselves the same thing. If everything we just sang about is true, <coughs> pardon me, at Christmas, why isn't it changing our lives? If everything we talk about and even sometimes want to argue about with other people, if that's really true, why isn't it changing our lives? Maybe we too need to consider our ways. So the revealing of wrong is actually an act of mercy. He doesn't abandon us. He corrects us. And sin and wrong are revealed so that we can fix it. God doesn't just point it out just because He wants to ruin your day. He wants to put you down. He wants to show how flawed you are. You know that. And He already knows that. He's showing you that so that you can fix it. So what's the smartest thing to do when God convicts your heart about some type of sin or error in your life? Fix it. Fix it. Change your ways. Consider your ways. Do something different. And so, in conclusion, we'll wrap this up by just saying, don't just think of the failure of the past, like Israel tended to do, or the pain of the present-day discipline. Do something higher and more nobler. Shouldn't say more nobler. Do something higher and nobler. There we go. And think of the harvest that is coming later. See, when God is disciplining you and working in your life, He's doing it because He wants to bring in a crop out of your life. A crop that is good, sweet, pure, and wonderful. He wants to, let's put it this way, restore the years that locusts have eaten. Aren't you tired of the locust just taking everything you've got? He wants to bring beauty out of ashes. And the temple at this point was nothing but rubble. Ashes and dust and rock and just a huge, huge pile of it. So that, <coughs> pardon me, Zerubbabel called it a mountain. Okay? What are they going to do and how are they going to do that? And the Lord says, 
That's really up to me. You remember later on he tells Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what do you have in your life that you go, well, I know the Lord wants me to clean this up. He wants me to quit this. He wants me to change this. But it's too big. It's bigger than I am. I can't really do that. Well, the Lord is not asking you to do it. He's asking you to agree with Him about it. And in agreeing with Him about it, then He says, I'll do the work, not by might, not by power, <coughs> but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to this. Talk about hopeful. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. A ask any two-year-old if they like spankings or if they like to be grounded or anything like that. And they will think that just, you know, mom and daddy's just being mean. <coughs> ask a teenager who has her car keys taken away from them or their cell phone taken away from them, right? Ask them what it's like. It never seems to be um, good. It's painful rather than pleasant. Now, I'm glad it doesn't stop there, but later it, re it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is God just trying to do? I'll show you. No, that's not really the point. The point is he wants us to grow up and he wants us to make wise choices. And when he says, consider your ways, I mean, he doesn't have to say that. He doesn't have to give us any of that. He could just clobber them, clobber us, take us out and say, done with you. But he doesn't. He says to these people, look at everything you've been through. Look at all of your history coming out of Egypt. Look at all your history as you are inheriting the promises of Abraham. Think about all of the times when the walls came tumbling down, battles that were won, victories that were won, and then think of how quickly you got to the last verse of the book of Judges, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Right? And so God said, I couldn't let that go on. You were destroying yourself. You were dishonoring me and the covenant that I had made with you. So I allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to uh, take you captive <coughs> and to destroy everything that was there. And for 70 years, you lived like that. Now you've got another chance. Don't make the same mistake. And this foundation has been sitting here for 14 to 16 years. You think they couldn't have done something about that? Well, you had time to build your own house. But the house of the Lord, eh, no big deal, right? And so the Lord says, look, I want you to consider your ways. Why? I'm growing you up. And I'm going to treat you instead of like a toddler. You don't reason with a toddler. But now you're grown up enough to where you know all of these things. So let's talk. Consider your ways. And I want you to grow. 
And I want you to act like a grown-up. And I want you to take steps that will move you forward so that I can bless your life. Because after all, I'm doing it simply because I love you. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're a lot like these people. And so we're going to learn from all of this. And we're going to look in the mirror and we're going to see how our lives are and how similar we are to them. Outwardly, everything looks great. Inwardly, our heart is far from God. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, tune in and to watch this today. God bless you, teachers. And God bless those of you who are doing this, uh, keeping up with your class. I appreciate that very, very much. And we we'll look forward to being with you again this next week. So again, thank you and may the Lord bless you.